0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our film critic Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hey, Katie. We've lost Mike Hogan again this week. I assume he's just out watching, you know, catching up with all of the great movies from the year. He's going to come back and tell us everything that's going to win Best Picture because he uh, knows everything.
1: He's actually gone missing uh, in Italy, which is pretty scary. We're we're all very worried.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think he's just doing a Call Me by Your Name tour, and he's just living in a villa there for. Yeah, it's it's
1: him in a turtleneck with Army Hammer, just (laughs) bicycling around.
0: Sounds beautiful. Uh, So without Mike, we, I guess, basically taking the opportunity this week to take kind of a breather. It's been a weird award season in the last couple of weeks, as the Harvey Weinstein story kind of takes over all Hollywood news. And it's a time where normally there'd just be kind of like endless going around talking about like, who's the front runner? What's opening? There's all of these movies that are opening right now. But I think partly because of the Weinstein story and the way that the news cycle has been, it's a really wide open year still, which I think we say every year, we're always like, oh my God, it's just a rare year. There's no front runner. But that usually doesn't last until late October. So this one's feeling kind of unusually open in a lot of different ways. So basically, I figured we could just go through all the categories and take stock. But before we get there, do you guys agree with me that everything feels more open now than it has been in a while?
1: Yeah, I definitely feel like there is a notable uncertainty you know and i don't remember exactly if this time last year it was how clear it was but i think that it was still that there was that definitely that la la land moonlight binary and maybe the moonlight thing at that point felt more like a kind of you know long shot hope pipe dream kind of thing but yeah, I don't know. I, it, it does feel like I, I was I was on Twitter as I always am uh, the, the other day, <laughs> and Ricky. I'm going to call him out because uh, I'm calling out by name. Uh, Ricky Camilleri, who's a writer and kind of host, and Rob Shear, who's a publicist, uh, were having a conversation wherein they sort of dubbed three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, as the you know almost sure thing to win Best Picture, which sounded insane for three seconds, and then I thought about it and I was like, well, I mean, it's as much of a sure thing as anything else, so.
0: Joanna, how are things looking on your end?
2: Across the board, I would say that there's more question marks. But every time we we talk about Best Picture, I feel like we talk about it, we talk about it, then we kind of go, eh, probably Dunkirk. You know, like that's usually <laughs> <laughs> how that conversation ends. And I'm not saying we shouldn't keep having the conversation. But there are, you know, among the acting categories, certainly it feels very, very murky, which is fun. So
0: here we go. Yeah, I was thinking about Dunkirk because I was talking to a publicist yesterday who was, you know, saying that, like, you know, like I said at the beginning, like it feels more open than ever and she said she like really didn't know of one guaranteed best picture nominee and i was going to kind of chime in and be like oh well you know i think dunkirk is definitely going to get it but i don't know that movie has gotten quieter which is a good strategy at this point because if you're a huge summer hit you don't want to just like continue beating down people's doors because that wears people out but it feels like I-, I feel less certain about that than i did in mid-september maybe
1: I mean, I don't know if it's just because every bit of reality is, is distorted now because of things having nothing to do with movies, but, like, doesn't it feel like Dunkirk came out... Like a year ago, like I just feel like (laughs) I was a different person. I had more hair. I was, you know, I was had more energy back in July. Like when was July? Um, so I don't know if the if the movie, like you said, Katie, is kind of lying in wait and will will mount. I mean, they've obviously been doing things like like Nolan showing up at Toronto, etc. But like, um, I I will be curious to see how that movie sort of restarts its engines. Um, because it's going to. I mean, Warner Brothers is definitely going to make a play for it. So I'm just curious how that's going to look.
0: Well, and the same thing with Get Out, which really did come out almost literally a year ago. Um, which it somehow feels different than Dunkirk, maybe because it was like more of a surprise. Like it wasn't such a, gi- a gigantic movie, but that they did an awards event for, for Get Out, I think in like May. Remember when they had like all these people in LA go to the back lot at Universal and like walk around, like go to a tea party? Um, but they haven't like pulled anything big like that since then. So I'll be kind of interested to see when that gets restarted again, too. I'm just curious to see all these festival
2: films hit the mainstream. And then I feel like we will get a better idea of, you know, you know, if call me by your name has some kind of moonlight momentum, if three billboards hits with audiences, cause like as much, as much as like, you know, what's big at the box office is not what determines best picture. It does, it does determine sort of how the conversation, the energy behind movies as they go forward. And as we've discussed already, there are a few contenders, you know, potential contenders like Stronger or Battle of the Sexes that, you know, given that they open with such a fizzle, just, aren't in the conversation anymore.
1: It's hard from our perspective because we're so sort of in it and we see things in kind of irregular rhythms. But like, I got an email the other day saying like, in in case you haven't seen it yet, like, or if you want to catch up, you know, like do a refresher, like come see Downsizing. And I was like, oh, right. Like there's a movie <laughs> that's still in, that like is still putting itself in this mix, even though we maybe have dismissed it long ago. So I just think there's going to be a lot in the next, I would say six weeks, that is going to resurface and kind of more formally announce itself as, you know, trying for an award uh, campaign. Uh, and I think that we'll be surprised. And I think that why we'll be surprised, especially this year, is just because there there are so few confirmed narratives, you know, because downsizing could still be in the mix. We don't know.
0: Yeah, I think that's what happens when you have this perception of things being wide open. Like, why wouldn't they try for it? Right. The money that you spend on an awards campaign is in some ways, like, more direct. Like, you're getting it in front of a specific group of people and not trying to, like, blanket the country with ads. And if you have a movie like Downsizing, which I think doesn't even open until December, like, you target it toward the people who are going to vote on awards, you get a nomination at the New York Phone critic circle awards and then all of a sudden when it opens in december it's got this buzz that exists that you couldn't have paid for with like you know billboards
1: yeah and new york film critic circle which i'm in is (laughs) is voting almost a month from like right now so that that means that like you know awards are going to be given out soon maybe it's less than six weeks maybe it's more like four weeks we're gonna have some clarification Um, we have the gotham award nominations out now and Yeah, so, so we're, we're, we're getting down to the wire for some campaigns that are maybe lagging. Um, I'll be curious to see what Novitiate does for Melissa Leo, for example. I've been talking about that since January, so. It's almost getting, like, clear, but we're not, we're not quite there yet.
0: Yeah, I was just going to bring up the Gotham Awards since so those nominations came out last week, and they are the first nominations of the season, basically. And they have a very specific indie film focus, so there's a lot of stuff that's not eligible. but like Dunkirk was not going to get nominated for a Gotham Award. Uh, but their best feature list, I think, is really interesting. It's Call Me By Your Name, which we've talked about a lot as a really strong film. The Florida Project, which is just starting to come to theaters and has uh, a really similar amount of people who just like love, love, love it and won't stop talking about it. Uh, then Get Out, which we mentioned earlier, which I thought... I wouldn't have expected it to be eligible for a Gotham Award with their kind of independent film focus. So that was interesting. And then they had kind of two dark horses in there. Good Time, the movie by the Safdie brothers that opened early this year with uh, Robert Pattinson and I, Tanya, which uh, Richard, we can, uh, we'll battle about for the rest of the season about whether or not it's any good. But um, I think that was the most surprising thing they had in their life. Uh,
1: I'm happy to battle with anybody about a good time too, because I don't think that yeah. Is, is is a worthy contender this year at all? And I and I think there are so many other movies uh, that should be in there over those. Well, Good Time and itania Um but you know, the Gotham's, you know, are sort of they, they're The the nominations are sort of formed in a strange way where they have a lot of different people kind of on different committees, you know, deciding who should be nominated for what. Um, it's kind of a, a a sort of Byzantine process. So there's there, there's always. Kind of in a weird anomaly, kind of or anomalies plural, in those awards. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was good news for Iyanya certainly, and and what yeah. they hope to do.
0: Is there anything else you feel like you're, or, or Joanna too, like anything else you feel like you're taking away from those nominations? You mentioned at the top, but the big narrative out of the Gotham seems to be
2: Get Out. Seems to be, which we had already been doing on this podcast, but I think to a larger audience, a signal of take this seriously as an awards contender. You know, don't forget about this film that came out. Uh, 200 years ago at the beginning of the year <laughs> and, <laughs> and is a genre film, but don't forget about it. It's a, it's an awards contender.
1: Yeah. So. And, and, and there are things that, you know, other, you know, entities, including ourselves, hint, hint have been doing to sort of suggest that get out is an Oscar movie and we'll be doing in the future. Uh, but like this, you, Joanna, like you're right, like does feel like, okay, now it's confirmed. This movie is in this, in this thing, which is, which is kind of a, a, a nice relief. Cause it's like, it, it had been this sort of question mark about whether or not the movie was actually going to register in that way. And now, given these early nominations, it has. And, and, and that will set the tone, I think, going forward.
0: And I was really glad to see uh, that it had Daniel Kaluya, Kalu- Kalu- in the uh, Best Actor lineup, because we've talked about how the Best Actor list this year is kind of Gary Oldman and then God knows who else. Uh, so why wouldn't the lead of Get Out be considered in there? I feel like that's a good start for that to become a real campaign, too.
1: And he's really good in it. You know, yeah, he's and really good. At he it. like holds the. I, he's almost in every scene. You know, he's he's so good. So, um, I, and I think that he he did get a little bit lost in the initial kind of, you know, frenzy over that movie. And now th- that that he's been singled out is is a nice uh, is a nice thing.
0: I think when you're in a movie directed by us, you know, Jordan Peele's not like a movie star exactly, but he's definitely famous. So when he but he was kind of the face of that movie as opposed to his star. And now maybe it's been enough time that the actual star of the movie, uh, gets a chance to, to shine. One of my maybe favorite surprising notes in the Gotham nominations was Mary J. Blige included in Breakthrough Actor, which uh, it, it's not divided by gender. So you get Mary J. Blige and also Timothy Chalamet and then also the girl who stars in The Florida Project. It's a fun lineup. Uh, but Mudbound is out this week. It's going to be on Netflix for everyone in the world to see, including me who still hasn't seen it. Do we still feel like Netflix is going to hamper this movie to the point that it's it can't be the contender that maybe it deserves to be?
1: well katie i do just want to say that you in the breakthrough actor there's also my young handsome husband harris dickinson we got married um <laughs> oh. this fall yeah so uh andrew garfield's really jealous as is um you know, taryn edgerton obviously but I'm, I'm i live an alternative lifestyle um but um yeah you know I, the blige thing is interesting because uh i i love mary j blige we all love mary j blige um she's not great in the movie. Uh, you know, there are other people uh, who are better, Jason Mitchell or, or Garrett Hedlund, come to mind. But I think that 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 her nomination in that category, although it's not a category that exists in other, you know, awards things, uh, it does keep that movie in the hunt. I think. I still think that it, it's it's uh, it has, a, has a steep uphill climb, but uh, it, and much more so than it looked like it had back in January uh, when it premiered at Sundance. But um, yeah, I think the Blythe nomination is a glimmer of hope for that movie.
0: I want to go back to what we were talking about, about box office hits and how Battle of the Sexes and Stronger are both kind of puttering along and not really doing that great. But what is doing amazingly well is Victoria and Abdul, which I don't know if we have ever talked about. Have any of us seen this movie?
1: I saw it back in August. Oh. Well, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> and I, I feel like multiple people have mentioned this to me recently as being like, it's a Judy Dench movie that's doing really well in art houses. You cannot count it out. And it does at this point feel like to count on a judy dench best actress nomination at least is like an obvious move no matter how crowded that field is
1: well also it's a stephen freer's as i think i've called it on this podcast it's a stephen freer's old lady movie and <laughs> we can we can write that off but like stephen freer's old lady movies get oscar nominations so uh because uh florence foster jenkins did uh, Philomena. Philomena did you know so uh, and also like i just love that you know, between doing a sequel for Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Victoria and Abdul being this quiet, artish house success, like, Judy Dench is more box office bankable than Michael Fassbender. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and she deserves credit for that. A lot of people are more bankable than Michael Fassbender at this point. Uh, <laughs> R.I.P. The Snowman. But, you know, she's, she's what, in her 80s? And I see why that movie is doing well. Uh, I think that it has a really, I don't know, maybe kind of gross approach to colonial... You know politics or whatever, but um, but it it is a nice movie and Dench is great in it, and it's a story that only I think was unearthed fairly recently that she even that the Queen Victoria even had this relationship with this guy, friendship. So there's a lot of draw there that I, I think that w- with a lot of darker things out this fall or or stuff that just isn't connecting like Battle of the Sexes, it makes sense that people are sort of going with a tried and true form, which is Judy Dench in a nice stately polite moving period piece
2: is it not only like a Stephen Fears old lady movie but like a Stephen Fears old lady movie with the sheen of like best exotic marigold like like uh liberalism or something like that associated (laughs) with it because of this interracial friendship and that you never would have guessed from queen victoria exactly yeah it's fascinating to me
1: yeah i mean there's a sort of exoticism i guess to it but you know again it's about an Indian guy who is, you know, kissing his colonial oppressor on the feet in a kind of loving way. And we're supposed to be moved by it, which, you know, but you know, (laughs) what what can you Um, do?
0: This might—I feel like if we're going category by category, we're skipping right over Best Director. But uh, I want to talk about Best Actress because it is a super interesting race, and Judy Dench might be a way into it. Uh, and I've been kind of mulling over a theory that I can't decide how valid it is—that in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein story and this kind of year of women speaking up for themselves, that there will be more attention to female-led stories and maybe more attention to the Best Actress race. Like the idea that you kind of want, like, put your vote where. The mood of the world is and, and support these women. Um, but at the same time, the academy is still largely made up by old white men. So I can't decide how much that might actually be true. I feel like if you want to talk about a movie and I haven't seen it yet,
2: but <laughs> a movie that captures the feeling of, of post Harvey Fall Hollywood, it feels like that's three billboards and it feels like that's Frances McDormand, the angry, like the anger of a righteous woman. Is what Frances McDormand is representing in that movie, and I, I, you know, she's she's a front runner. I'm not saying anything controversial, but like, I, I mean, I really feel like that is the taking of the temperature of the mood in the room.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Joanna, about why that, why three billboards and particularly McDormand is going to resonate. I think the interesting thing about that movie, and maybe we'll do a more kind of in depth thing about that movie when it's closer to release, but like, is that. That movie feels righteous in a way, but I think if you actually kind of scratch past the surface, there are problems lie at its heart. I don't, I don't know that that movie is exactly um, saying the th- things that we want it to say, um, oh, but, boy. but McDormand is undeniably wonderful in it and undeniably an avatar for a lot of us who are just fucking angry, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that goes a long way.
2: And, and I, I I would probably agree with you, and also even your more nuanced assessment of Victoria and Abdul, but I'm wondering, and that's what makes you one of my favorite movie critics to read, not to, you know, kiss your feet on this podcast. But, uh, checks, um, checks in the mail. Okay. Through, checks in the mail. <laughs> Thanks. But I'm wondering if those layers that you, Richard, uh, are able to dig into, if those really... Permeate in the Oscar conversation, which I don't know always really delves into those subtleties, those, those like smaller issues or, or less apparent issues. I feel like. A lot of people are going to walk out of three billboards being like, yeah, that's what this says. And Richard's like, actually, but did you notice it says this? And they're like, no, we care that it says this. Do you know what I mean? And um, once again, I say all of this not having seen the film. Well,
1: usually the day after the Oscars, uh, you know, the ceremony, I will send anonymous letters to everyone in the Academy saying, "Uh, hello, Mr. Academy. I gave you all the clues. (laughs) And they won't, you know, because they never listen to me. No, they Um,
0: never save her. (laughs)
1: yeah that's right um but no i I think i think that it's not just me joanne i think that like there is you know critics or whoever like are doing a certain kind of investigation of a movie academy members are doing it differently i mean we see that reflected anytime the hollywood reporter whoever else runs those like you know anonymous screenwriter you know goes through the categories and says what they and and it's like appalling (laughs) what how they approach this stuff appalling to me anyway um you know uh and and who knows if that's actually representative of how uh, how the, the the larger voting body is but like yeah what we're expecting from a movie is not necessarily what the academy is and 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 you're right that in a in a frenzy of seeing watching screeners and going to things and parties and whatever something like three billboards they might not think t- Twice about it. It might just be on first impression, it's this. And so they're going to vote for it.
0: I can't help but think of how Harvey Weinstein would market his movie in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Like what he would do to kind of shamelessly being like, this is the movie where you channel all of your liberal feelings. And there are a lot of people who have been kind of learning from him over the years who I think are going to do this, maybe not in as brazen a way. But the like the shadow of the way he, you know, he would like do the campaign for the imitation game and be like, honor the man, honor the film. Uh, It does feel like we're going to get some like more updated versions of that for a lot of these
1: oh for sure yeah there's going to be a lot of there's going to be i think a lot of um like kind of uh contortions to to make certain movies more like kind of politically relevant you know where where they're maybe not they're not just not you know so i because i think that that'll be the sort of one of the narratives the the main narrative uh, uh of this season
2: and it's funny because like it could have been Battle of the Sexes, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. Like, you know, you could sort of superimpose whatever male chauvinist you want to onto the Corral character and champion, Um. you know, the Emma Stone character, even though they're both obviously playing real-life people. But uh, it, I just, I'm amazed at how little that movie is resonating with people. It's just, yeah. it's not even that I thought it was an amazing movie. I thought it was a fine movie, so maybe that's why. But I'm just amazed that like by sheer marketing, a dint of marketing a they haven't been able to make that land better. If Billie
1: Jean King was only a football player, then people (laughs) would have cared.
0: I wanted to talk about The Shape of Water, which I think is a good candidate for kind of uh, turning itself into the mood of the moment. I think it's kind of a, a metaphor for a lot of different things, which I like. Richard, I remember you like I think maybe I was talking to you about this in real life that like Gamma del Toro had said he thought of it as a metaphor for like immigration and about the idea of like meeting the other. And you're like, I didn't see that at all. I thought it was about something else totally different, uh, which can be really valuable to a movie that it can be a lot of things to a lot of different people.
1: Yeah, I mean, that movie is at at one turn, a sort of straightforward, nostalgic kind of period piece romance, albeit one about a monster and a woman falling in love. So it has a kind of odd edginess to it. But yeah, it it can be viewed as that. Del Toro says it's about immigration. I totally see that. Like, it, you know, kind of thinking back on the movie, I saw it as sort of a celebration of queer love and like ultra kind of, you know, non societally, you know, condoned you know, romance and whatever. So yeah, I think you're right that it something like that that can almost serve as like a Rorschach test, you know, open to interpretation for the Academy. Different people can love it in different ways, which is actually kind of what the movie's about. That makes it a more sort of accessible, you know, adaptable, you know, kind of best picture contender because um, a lot of people can appreciate it from different angles versus something like maybe even Get Out where that's, you know, there is sort of one approach to that movie, I think. Well, maybe
0: not. Yeah, no, Get Out is about what it's about. And I, I don't think that's to its disservice. And Shape of Water is something that people just have such an emotional response to, which I think is also something you can't really count out. I think it's a lot of what propelled Moonlight. Like, people just loved that movie and wanted to talk about it. And it, it again, like, it had this big burst of attention at Toronto. It's opening in November, so it's kind of quiet in this period right now. But it does feel like like that and Call Me By Your Name kind of seem like the titles that people just, like, want to keep loving and talking about and, you know, living inside that movie.
2: Yeah, you know, um Sally Hawkins as, you know, maybe a less abrasive but defiant voice for what is the moral right against the patriarchy seems to be the narrative coming out of Shape of Water. I don't mean to say that, like, women fighting the patriarchy is the only story we can be interested in this year, but it seems to be the you know, it's definitely the story in, in Hollywood right now. Um, and, and I imagine for the next few months. And so, um, you know, those, uh, for a million other reasons, both, both Sally Hawkins and Francis McDormand are incredible actresses. So it's not just like that they're capturing a mood in these particular performances but like it does seem to be giving them an a, an extra turbo charge i think uh right now so and i'm I, you know i'm fascinated to see if uh you know going back to best picture for a hot second i'm fascinated to see if what we saw last year with la la land and moonlight which was this sort of battle of the quieter more personal films um if that's a battle we see again this – or battle or or a race we see again this year, I, you know, I, like I said, I keep coming back to Dunkirk, but maybe that's me thinking about old Academy and I need to think about new Academy, which maybe is more interested in more personal, smaller stories. I don't know, you know.
0: Well, and the thing that I can't decide, I think no one knows the answer to is how much new academy is there versus old academy. Like, you know, they keep the, the membership roles kind of secret. Like it's a, uh, they keep adding new people, but the, it's already a gigantic group that still has a lot of old school people still in it. And it seems totally possible to me that you would see Moonlight and then see kind of a, uh, not a reversion because I think Dunkirk's a great movie, but like a return to more of the bigger spectacle films that, uh, you might expect the academy to go for more. And, and, what is also interesting to me is that
2: in a year you're right, that is so marked by uncertainty, the best actor category feels like it's been locked up for so long, still feels like it's locked up for Gary Oldman. And then my question to you guys uh, is – is there anyone who could come spoil that for Gary Oldman? Um, Michael Fassbender in The Snowman? Like, I don't know. <laughs>
1: he's definitely going to win something, but it might be Razzie. No, he's actually fine in the movie. I mean, we should we should do a whole Snowman special episode. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, a trailer that was just released this week was Phantom Thread, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's um, movie period piece about a clothing designer, um, dressmaker uh and it seems to be like his very i don't know bad man relationship with a woman um but like it's supposedly daniel day lewis's last film and you know whatever uh so i I think he's a potential spoiler although that would be a fourth win for him which is almost unprecedented what Hepburn has for right or had for yeah
0: i think she might be the only
1: one yeah but yeah i don't know i i actually like i really uh, no knock on gary oldman but like i really wish there was something that was really like someone else who was really coming in and kind of troubling that narrative for him because it's just kind of boring. And, and that, and that movie and his performance is great, but it's so, it's just like chum for the Academy. It's so obvious as a kind of Oscar movie that I wish that like, maybe it's Daniel Kaluuya from, from get out or, or, or somebody else, or, you know, even Jason Mitchell or Garrett Hedlund from Mudbound or somebody else that could like, Kind of till the earth of this of this particular category, but yeah, I don't. I mean, that's not going to happen. I think he's still going to win.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think where you're going to get your excitement is in who gets nominated. Like we've talked before about how Timothy Chalamet would be. I don't know if the, the the youngest Best Actor nominee, but really close to it. So like that's really intriguing. I mean, I think Tom Hanks. I, for some reason the post doesn't feel like it's going to be his like big chance but he's on such a weird losing streak with the oscars he hasn't been nominated since castaway um so like that would be that would feel like a reward enough to me i'm so mad about him not getting nominated for captain phillips i know how crazy is it that he's get nominated <laughs> I, for captain I'm phillips so <laughs> mad about it <laughs> um so I mean, I I, I thought Gary Oldman really was phenomenal in Darkest Hour. Like it is the performance that lives up to the hype. So I kind of feel okay about it being rubber stamp for him. But I'm hoping that we get some intriguing nominations at least.
2: Timothy Chalamet seems like a like a fun option there. And uh, I'm hoping I'm pulling for Andrew Garfield not because I've seen Breathe or think it's the best thing ever, but just because I remember how delightful Andrew Garfield was on the awards cycle like last season. That I want to see it again
0: just for timothy chalamet uh stats here the youngest best actor nominee was nine years old nominated in 1930 uh and then mickey rooney was nominated twice when he was 19 and 23 so who was the chalamet nine-year-old right in there. uh jackie cooper in oh Skimmy.
1: okay sure yeah everyone knows that classic
0: yeah, uh, no, definitely um, the, the oscars in the 30s were strange
1: hi i'm jeremy larson the reviews director of pitchfork and this podcast is supported by pitchfork music festival
0: So let's get away from the men because they're boring, uh, and I think this year at least the male performances are less fun to talk about than the women. Uh, supporting actress is also really interesting. And Joanna, you were saying that it's a uh, it's a lot of moms. Yeah, right. It feels like feels like the mom category. So
2: um, <laughs> you know we've got Holly Hunter for The Big Sick, Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird, Alison Jenny is playing Tonya Hardy's mom, and I, Tanya, right? Yes. I I just made that assumption. <laughs> Without, um, having seen it, you know, so these, you know, and then, um, I guess, uh, Leo is playing a nun, so technically a mother superior mother type of, of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Something. Anyway, you know, these, these actresses, I know, well, I don't know this. I want to assume that Richard is, is really excited about Laurie Metcalf because I know you love her mm-hmm. in like all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, or is, is she your, your champion this year, Richard?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, I think that it, it looks like she'll get a nomination, which is really exciting. And I think that with her and Jannie both, Um, even though I didn't love either movie, although Lady Bird is far, I liked it a lot more than I, certainly they're TV actresses, you know, and they're much, they're, 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 they're very lauded and awarded TV actresses. And so, and, and theater actresses. Uh, so to see them kind of having these breakthroughs in film, uh, later in their careers is, is, is just a cool narrative to, to kind of, you know, um, grab onto. But yeah, I don't know that, honestly, I don't know that Metcalf would be my like, number one with a bullet kind of favorite in the supporting category but at the same time i don't really know who is andrea riceborough in battle the Sexes* comes to mind she'll never be nominated but she's wonderful in that movie you know so so I don't know there there are probably some performances I'm not I'm can't call to mind right now that are that that I really liked
0: um I'm also really uh intrigued by the idea of Holly Hunter for the big Sick because uh, that movie is kind of the big indie success story of the year I mean there I think a screenplay nomination for Command on Johnny and Emily Gordon is really possible but I like the idea of Holly Hunter you know she's got a huge Oscar pedigree and of her getting a, an acting nomination on that would be great this feels like um
2: Patricia Arquette winning for boyhood, like as a sort of symbolic for the whole movie kind mm. of potential win. The other person in the mix here is, uh, you know, once again, I haven't seen Breathe, but Claire Foy in, in a very tradition and Tatiana Maslany both are in this mix as, um, we talked about how stronger is sort of out of the discussion, but I, that is such a typical. Best supporting actress role of like supportive wife and supportive girlfriend, right? Um, to the to the struggling leading
0: man. So, um, I, you know, I don't know if I want to blow up that the the example of that that I think is pretty likely is Kristen Scott Thomas in Darkest Hour, who I think is really good in it, playing Winston Churchill's wife. But it is it's another like very supportive wife kind of role. But I don't know. I feel like if you're going to have that part, you may as well have Kristen Scott Thomas do it. Yeah, and then the
2: last the last supporting. <laughs> um or no, no no the last mother that i will include is someone on on this uh, site that i'm looking at has Michelle Pfeiffer for mother exclamation mark and that that would delight me cuz Michelle Pfeiffer was great she was so good i mean i don't know that i would call it like acting or a full category but like um like a full character it's more of a like a mood
0: but it's still she's <laughs> she's really good in it I mean, we were talking about how it's so wide open that why not keep going having campaigns like maybe mother will just stay in the mix somehow and there'll be enough people who want to keep talking about it that it, uh, it I don't know who knows if supporting actress is wide open. Why not Michelle Pfeiffer? Uh, Richard, you brought up Kevin Spacey and All the Money in the World, uh, which I think is a good segue to Supporting Actor, which I think, uh, as Joanna was saying, it's got a lot more variety of roles than Supporting Actress does. And uh, what I really enjoy about it is it's a lot of people who I feel like have been, like, really good for a long time and not appreciated by the Academy. Like, you've got uh, Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards, who's really at the front runner. Michael Stuhlbarg in Call Me By Your Name, uh, Richard Jenkins, who has been nominated before but hasn't won for The Shape of Water. It's a, I, I really like this category this year. Willem Dafoe, yeah, for, Dafoe. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, Willem Dafoe, who I think has been nominated twice, uh, but also hasn't won.
1: It's an interesting lineup because, it, you're, like you said, Katie, it is a lot of people who are like have been waiting in the wings for a long time, or have been kind of these kind of like you know lovable character actors for a long time. So I I think that like there are a lot of good potential wins. I would be thrilled if Richard, Richard Jenkins finally won. I'd be thrilled if Dafoe finally won. You know, there it it's there's a lot of like um, there are a lot of positive outcomes there. I think that uh there was a chance long ago maybe that kevin hart was going to get an oscar nomination for um
0: oh boy
1: for that movie that uh with the upside but now that's been destroyed by the weinstein thing um so so i don't know i I don't i don't know if i see many like late break kind of creeping in there people with that i feel like there's a, a list of maybe six seven eight guys who are 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 pretty pretty known at this point.
0: Well, I guess we don't really know about the post. Like, there's not even a trailer for that out yet, and it's hard to know who might have a large role besides Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. So, and I, I think Michael Stolberg has a large role in that. So. Uh, who knows what might happen? Oh, and
1: Stuhlbarg but... is so good in comboing Your Name, and I, 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 I hope that he can squeak in there. I, I think I don't know if maybe the per- it, the performance really hinges on one scene, which has not stopped the Academy before. But
0: at this point, I feel like he is maybe more of a sure thing from that than Army Hammer, which is not what yeah, I expected yeah. at Toronto because uh, his one scene is so phenomenal, and Army Hammer is kind of a deliberately opaque character in the movie because it's told from the perspective of Timothy Chalamet, so you kind of don't know what's going on in his head for a lot of the time and also the oscars have a weird bias against hunky men and uh no one has ever been more beautiful on film than army hammer and call me by your name uh which could uh could hurt him there
1: yeah i just i i you know there's so much about the academy that's 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 surprising to me and mystifying to me and you know we kind of try to unpack it on this podcast but like the aversion to hunky men it's like guys what what's (laughs) what's it's, the hold up here like i don't it's jealousy obviously yeah, like
0: these guys won the genetic lottery do they really need oscars <laughs> on top of
1: it <laughs> give he- chris hemsworth his oscar um, well i don't know if i don't know if he's earned it yet
0: <laughs> Joanna, do you have any personal favorites uh long deserving character actors in here god
2: sam rockwell it's hard to argue you know like he's just been so much in so many things um from, from like the very beginning when he bursts on the indie, God, that's a, what a terrible phrase, burst on the indie scene. But like, you know, he's just like, he comes out box of moonlight, like swinging, you know, and, and has done things like moon where he just carries a whole thing. And he's just, he, I think he's an absolute genius. And, um, I, you talk about sort of army hammer being handicapped by his good looks. I think Sam Rockwell is handicapped by like how funny he often is. <laughs> and, and I think people just don't see, How much work is going on? in this guy who seems so just effortlessly charismatic and, and charming.
1: It would also be fun to see Leslie Bibb on the, uh oh, you know, awards red carpet.
0: <laughs> on the awards circuit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I love her. I,
0: I wanted to give him credit and talking about Sam Rockwell being uh, good for a long time. He's really good in Iron Man 2 which is a complete disaster yeah. of a movie uh, and none of the characters make any sense but he's really great in it and you, you like imagine the version of the movie that was just calmer and had only him as a villain. I didn't realize that Leslie Bibb and
2: Sam Rockwell are like a weird Iron Man love match mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah and 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 still going strong somehow
1: i would give sam rockwell an oscar retroactively for galaxy quest he's wonderful uh, in that well, that's yeah, a great guy. that's a great movie
0: <laughs> oh god it this like uh this supporting actor race of like long-running character actors is gonna be such a great time to be like i would give richard jenkins an oscar for flirting with disaster right i'll get to talk about those movies yeah
1: exactly um which is fun I, and i think that like that's that's nice i mean it's it's it has a sort of um it's it's not contentious. It's just sort of like, oh, you know, it, it would be nice if any of these people won. Um maybe some someone else will enter the the fray and then it'll be it'll kind of blow the whole thing up. But right now it feels kind of cozy in a way. I think, you know, yeah. we all have our our little our our horses, but no, nothing is terribly uh, on on the line really.
0: Yeah. You no, know, two other people I wanted to shout out, the uh, Ben Mendelson, also in Darkest Hour, uh seems like he could get in there. And then uh Mark Rylance, let us not forget. A uh, recent winner who's in Dunkirk, who's like the only face you can pull out of the lineup in Dunkirk, other than, than Harry Styles, who I think is getting a Best Actor campaign from you, right, Richard?
1: Uh, We'll talk about it over dinner tonight, but uh, yeah, we're going to try. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try for it.
0: So let's get out of Oscars entirely. We're in the award season where we... Do get to talk about movies every week, but we still like talking about television. That's still part of uh, our little gold men ethos. And uh, this week, Stranger Things is back, which is like the closest thing that there is to a blockbuster on a streaming service. You know, I, I heard people literally, I was like walking down the street and I heard a woman walking her dog say to her husband, Stranger Things is back on Friday, which is like, I had literally never heard that, something like that before. Um, so, Joanne and Richard, you guys have watched, I think, the whole new season. And Richard, your review is up on VF. Um, obviously, I think spoilers are a big thing for this. So, we don't want to. Get into too much detail, but Richard, your review kind of got into how it's got this sophomore slump thing going on that I think might have been inevitable for it. But uh, it, does it does it have pleasures to it still, even if the hype around it is so gigantic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know I something I wrote about in the review uh, is that. Uh, you know, maybe I'm too sensitive to this, or pay too much attention to it. But like, when something gets really hyped and sort of memed, and 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 becomes a cultural phenomenon, it pushes me further and further from the actual thing. And 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 watching these new episodes, I haven't gone back and rewatched season one. But watching the new episodes, I kind of forgot that I loved the first season. You know, I went back and read my review, and it was like this rave, and I was like, oh right, because I, you know, going into season two, I was sort of just annoyed by the whole thing, the whole phenomenon of it. Um, so you know, trying to kind of excise some of that from my my, my that bias from my, my mind, like um yeah, of course, there is stuff to like, but um, I think that the show really does suffer from all that hype and from all of that you know and and they kind of lean into it in a way that uh sort of works counter to what was so great about the first season which was this kind of unexpectedness this humility this the the, the characters had a sort of decency about them you know it it, it all felt very um sort of homemade and humble and 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 this season you know they're doing more of the kind of the hero shots and and you know introducing the the characters you know reintroducing them and sort of like you know, here's your favorite, you know, kind of way that it's all like very holding
0: for applause, even though everyone's watching this at home by themselves.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, I can think of one moment in the second season, in particular, that does that. Uh, that you know, it just doesn't really work for what I think originally was a a kind of small scale uh, in, a, in in its own way show that 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 really uh, operated out of a place of earnestness and 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 kind of you know nerdy passion. It's now become a little bit. Um, you know, it's like, you know, nerds should never become popular, you know, because they, they just, it's not good. It's not good for them. Um, but, but anyway, there are things to love. I love the teenage characters, not the the main kids, but the older kids. Um, I think that they're so good and they're such good actors and the characters maintain a humanity throughout the second season that in a way that other characters don't.
2: I had a really similar experience to Richard in terms of I really liked the first season when I watched it and then I hated the fandom and the and <laughs> the fandom itself just soured me on all stranger things um but I remember watching it and I was just sort of it, it, you know and exactly what you said it, it had the benefit of uh being so unexpected we we knew that there was this thing with this Stephen King font and we're like okay whatever this horror movie horror show from Netflix and then you're like oh no this is very charming and winning and then the internet came along Along with its like egos and hashtag Barb and all of it, and I just wanted to die. So, um, you know, and that's my own I don't know issue. That's my own pathology. Like, why can't you just uh, like enjoy popular things? It's I don't definitely know
0: what it not. Is. It's not limited to you, though. I mean, they're, it's not. Like- no, I'm not. I'm not
2: special that way. But like, I really do wish that you know people memeing things into oblivion didn't have such an impact on like what should just be an independent like uh you know opinion of a piece of art. I should be able to just maintain my thoughts and feelings about it but i just the whole thing got got ruined for me so once again i i really actually i enjoyed my experience watching season 2 a little bit more than richard i think because i once again enjoyed being interacting with this world outside of the noise of the fandom. And that's scr- hashtag screener privilege. But, um, you know, and I also know people who like watching things several years after it comes out so they can enjoy it out of the noise of fandom in a different way. Someone I know said he didn't want to start watching Game of Thrones until all this nonsense was over. And I was like, I can't really argue with you about that. <laughs> um, so, okay. So season two, I agree with Richard in that. I think. Season two shows the uh, unfortunately, I think shows the Duffer Brothers maybe learning some of the wrong lessons from the fandom, like leaning yes. into certain things. That's a good that way I of putting j- it. Yeah, yeah, that I just don't, you know, like like the egos or Barb. You know, I'm just sort of like <laughs> I see you, I see you reacting to what you hear people liked about your show, and I understand that temptation. Um, because why wouldn't you? You're like, oh well, here's a you know, it's like. If you do live theater and you hear applause on a certain joke every night, you're like, well, that's how I'm going to deliver it for the rest of time. But like, but yeah, season two, there are just, you know, a lot of things where I'm just like, I, I, I know why this is here and I don't really respect why this is here. That being said, um, I, I agree with Richard. I love the teenage kids, the, the character of Steve. I should look up the, do you know that actor's name off the top of your head? Joe Keery. Um yeah, yeah. Oh, I really, I love that character. Um, and what an interesting thing to do with that character. They also, they introduced a couple new, four, I would say four new characters. Uh, two of which are adults, uh, played by Sean Astin and Paul Reiser, who I think actually really work. Yeah. And two, two of whom are kids, which I don't think work at all. Like they never really feel like they're actually integrated fully into the show.
0: Uh, just question about Sean Astin. How much do they lean into the Goonies there? The, the Goonies get to lean in uh, overall in the sh- in the season, but not from him, actually. Okay, so they they had a little bit of restraint on not, like, having him, I don't know, say Goonies ever say die or something.
2: No, there's, there's, like, a very Goonies scene where, like, a bunch of kids go underground, but it, he's not involved in it. So, um,
0: but um,
2: he actually, his stuff, he has, like, a very odd, like homage to Jurassic Park is like his big thing. So that's kind of interesting to me, but, um, which is not 80s, obviously. And then, um, Paul Reiser, I think, you know, is interacting a bit with his aliens character, um, a, a little bit. So that, you know, there's some nostalgia from that, but, but it's not overt. And I, you know, I've been, yeah, Richard does the highbrow reviews for our sites. I do the, like, 80s pop culture references, the amount of mist in Stranger Things type of coverage. <laughs> and uh, so... You do more than that, let's be sure. Yeah, but sometimes I do that. And so um I was, you know, going through with, like, a sharp eye looking for those kind of things. And it's really not as bad as I sort of remembered. I remembered Stranger Things being more pastiche than I think it manages to be in season two. Um, Like, I can stretch and say, well, that's sort of like a Goonies moment. But it's not like – they don't say Goonies, never say die, or no one has, like, a booby trap trench coat or anything like that, you know? So it's not – if it's there, I think it's maybe subtler almost this year. Anyway, so the, the last thing I'll say is that, I, while I agree with a lot of what Richard said about the problems of season two – Um, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would because I didn't think I'd enjoy. I was like, kind of like, we don't need any more stranger things, you know? Like when, when, I think when that first season wrapped up, a lot of us who saw it before it hit the fandom thought, well, it would be fun to do this as an anthology series. Let's just leave these kids where they are, even though season one sort of ends on a cliffhanger, like leave these kids where they are and move on to a different town. Um, but once the kids became such a big part of the show, like everyone knew that that was not going to be the case. You're not just going to like ditch these viral sensation child stars. Yeah. Millie Bobby Brown's coming back. So, and the Millie, like this is the last thing I'll say. Sorry. Millie Bobby Brown, lovely human. um, I'm sure lovely young actress, but like is not the thing that interests me most about stranger things. And once again, stranger things just really leans. And she like, basically, Not to spoil anything, but there's basically like a backdoor pilot episode that's just centered on her, which is the hugest mistake of the whole series. It's a
1: very bad episode.
2: It's so terrible. Yeah. And, um, and it's a weird thing to do in a bingeable series. Yeah. Um, usually on a Netflix series, you can't identify like a single episode that you're like, man, if you just snip that episode out, this would be a lot stronger like season because you're watching it all together. But this is just such a, such a clanging artistic mistake I think that um
1: it also yes. it also defies um the the geography of the show that works so well for it in the first season the interiority of it, that it's all in this little town that it's very contained and and this this uh, this plot line with uh, 11 millie bobby brown's character uh d- takes us out of that in a in a way that that doesn't doesn't feel like an organic expansion of the show, it feels really out of character for the show, and um and uh, I I just yeah I think it's a it's a major misstep, and um and I'm I and I I wonder, Joanna, if you're if you're onto something that maybe there was sort of a kind of you know hope that they could kind of turn that digression into something else.
2: Cynically, I definitely I like I really feel like. That is a backdoor pilot. And if, if, um, you know, cause basically, like, as in the case of any backdoor pilot, um, which for those of you listening, you're like, I thought this was a movie award season podcast and don't know what a backdoor <laughs> pilot is. That's like, that's inserting an episode into a season that you intend to like spin off into a different world. And basically your main character will probably like visit that world and then leave in the span of an episode. And that's what happens. You know, like 11 goes into this other world. That's in a different, that's it's in New York, right there in New York. um, And then leaves it. And so you're like, okay, well, obviously Chicago,
1: I think it is. Oh, it's Chicago. Okay. Yep. That makes
2: yeah. at least geographically a bit more sense. Yep. Um, But uh you know, goes in the world, leaves it. Uh, that world is very comic booky, y very uh, – a lot of what we're seeing actually right now in comic book trends, which is a bunch of teenagers. Um, yeah, I, I have zero doubt that Netflix and the Duffer Brothers would like to make a spinoff series and that this is their, uh, you know, testing the waters. And if it goes over well, which I don't think it will. Um, yeah, I don't want
1: to watch that, that show. Season. That show does not really, seem good. No. I really don't. <laughs> or
0: maybe the Duffer Brothers thought that they were going to get to make something else after the first season of Stranger Things, and then got stuck going back to this whole world. Uh, and that's like the way to keep them happy—to actually get to tell yeah. a different story.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to. um i, I mean, This episode is going to be out before the show is even on Netflix, so we should be, you know, cautious about spoilers and everything. But I, I feel like the season ends, and and with no specifics stated, the season ends. Almost exactly where it started in a way that, like, I'm just like, what, what did we just watch? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I'll be, you know, when they get a third season, it will happen, I'm sure. I'll just be curious because, um, sometimes second seasons are terrible. Friday Night Lights comes to mind, Lost comes to mind, and they can, and the, and the ship can write itself, uh, later, but, um, I feel like they have a lot of writing to do.
2: Well, I'm, I'm actually, this is, this is perverse of me. Once again, uh, enjoy my perverse relationship with rabid fandoms, but like, I'm almost hoping that a lot of people are disappointed by Stranger Things season two. So that season three can exist outside of the pressure of all of that. Hmm. This, this is yeah. sort of my hope for like, this is us as well. Like anything serial, like anything where people are just too excited about the first season. I just need everything to calm down a little bit. Everything needs needs to cool off, you know, because like with other rabid fandoms like Game of Thrones that built slowly over time. And so it's like less crazy to me, but to anoint something as this, you know, just perfection in the first season is so short sighted when, you know, the Duffer brothers could have had the idea for season one for so long. And then they have, you know, true detective, of course, True Detective. and then you have to, you have to come up with a, with a season two. And then you're like, oh, I don't know this. So yeah, I I'm, I'm actually hoping not because I'm rooting against the show, but I'm just hoping that people watch season two are sort of like, huh. Meh, hmm. And then we get season three uh, in, in just a, a more rational coming from a more rational place. And then maybe also the Duffer brothers could, uh, not give in to their worst instincts of pandering to the fandom. This Barb stuff is just egregious. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) Joanna's really heated about Barb.
0: that does it for this week's little men you can always find us on apple podcast where you can rate and review and help other people find us and join the conversation about award season and also stranger things uh we are always on VanityFair.com, writing about award season and lots of other stuff you can look for richard's review of stranger things and joanna's list of 80s references and many other thoughtful things about stranger things we're all on twitter at little gold men and on our own i'm at katie rich richard
1: i'm at rylads and i also want to say i made a lot of jokes in this episode about me dating or being married to handsome celebrities it's just a joke i don't i'm not actually that boy crazy and like i i i am a professional okay so it's it's <laughs> it's just taryn edgerton who i'm married to that's the only one yeah. i actually no, really I just want to be
0: clear yeah. that you you yeah. should, you are monogamous at yes. time. Yeah, yeah uh and joanna you can find me at I wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply.
1: And this week's award for best maybe not justifiable outrage goes to Katie Rich and Joanna Robinson.
0: I'm so mad about it.
2: Um, <laughs> this Barb stuff is just egregious. So... <laughs>